someone who's into New Year's resolutions, the passage that we're looking at this morning is a good one. You might give it some consideration. This is the church that has lost its love and they could lose their ministry because of it. You see that in verse four. This I have against you, that you have left your first love. Love is uh, one of the most difficult terms to adequately define, probably because we use it in so many different contexts. I mean, we, we love so many things. We love the holidays. We love certain foods. We love vacations and sports teams. We love books and pets and people, and the list could just go on and on and on. And we love so many different things, it's hard to define what love really is because we apply it in so many different contexts. And when it comes to speaking of love in its highest expression, and that is towards people, terms like loyalty and devotion come to mind. Intentionality, sacrifice, discipline, deliberateness, all of those terms begin to come to mind because that really defines what love consists of when it comes to people. And we all understand that Love is not absent of emotion and affection, and it can't be relegated to mere emotion and affection either. Puppy love is not lasting love. Eroticism is not devoted love. Obligation is not enjoyable love. We also understand that love for people is not relegated merely to being correct in our assessment of facts and truth. Just because you're right doesn't mean that you love. Love can be correct and heartless at the same time. We further understand that the deepest degrees of love for people must include the concepts of purity and singularity of devotion, unmixed with affection for others to the same de degree. In fact, when we speak of mixed affection, mixed loyalties, when we talk about love, we're treading on the language of unfaithfulness and adultery, aren't we? For relationships to last, they require genuine love. And without genuine love, relationships evaporate. And what's true for the highest of individual human relationships can also be similar for our church. Remember, what we're reading here is not about just an individual Christian. It's about a whole congregation. If a church is to be and remain an authentic church, think about this carefully. It has to be a congregation that is characterized first and foremost, at the end of the day, it has to be characterized by love. It has to. I, I know that doctrinal orthodoxy is critical you can't have a true church that believes false things. But it's possible to be orthodox in doctrine and disingenuous in love. And therefore, you're a church that doesn't deserve to last. So this morning, we need to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us as a congregation. In fact, as we walk through all of these messages through the seven churches, we need to allow the Holy Spirit to speak. That's exactly what the end of every message says, right? Listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. We're not talking about just some subjective feeling that you feel as some de 
definition of the Spirit speaking. No, he's speaking to us through the word and he will apply that specifically to our life congregationally, to our lives specifically. We need to listen to him when he addresses us in this issue. The church in Ephesus was a doctrinally strong church, really strong, and it lost its love, and it was going to lose its ministry. We need to think about that. How does a church keep from losing its love? There's so many things coming against the church today. There are so many assaults against the church today. I can't even begin to tell you how frequent I find doctrinal assaults against the church, how much of our time is spent as elders and shepherds trying to correct wrong thinking about the Bible and its misapplication to life. It's just constant. So many assaults and perhaps the greatest assault that could come against the church is not just in doctrinal orthodoxy, but in our inability to continue to love each other carefully and persistently. So how do we keep from losing our love? Because if we lose our love as a congregation, we lose our right to exist as a church. How do we keep from losing our love? That's what we're gonna look at this morning in these seven verses. And in these seven verses, we want to think this through. We, we want to look at how a congregation is called to monitor its mindset and maintain activities that will keep its love, not lose it. So this morning, we're gonna look at Revelation 2, 1 to 7, that calls a church, that calls our church, that calls any church to monitor and maintain six different activities so that it will not lose its love. That's the arrangement this morning, just six different activities to monitor, to maintain so that we will not lose our love as a congregation. Let's look at the first. It's found in verse one. The first is we need to keep in mind Christ's authority and his presence. These two ideas about Christ, his authority and his presence. If you want to maintain your love for each other, then it's the authority of Jesus that you need to keep in your mind and his constant presence among us. We see that in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. The first of these seven messages Jesus sends to the seven churches he has named those seven churches back in chapter 1 verse 11 and he begins with the church in Ephesus the city itself Ephesus had a very long history beginning somewhere around 900 BC continuing on in past 300 AD into the 400s AD and by the time Paul was there in the first century AD it was in its, basically its third iteration as a city. In fact, you can, you can go and you can actually see elements of these iterations of the city if you go to Ephesus, ancient Ephesus today. Likely when Paul went to this city, it was at its height in terms of population and influence. 
Now Pergamum, a church that we'll talk about later, it was actually the capital of the region of Asia that's being addressed here, but Ephesus was likely the most prominent city among all of the cities in Asia Minor. Estimates are somewhere between 175,000 and 225,000 people lived in that ancient city. That's fairly significant. If you go there today, you'll find a little tiny city there, Selchuk, and it has about 22,000 people. But Ephesus in the day of Paul might have been somewhere around 200,000 people. That's massive for an ancient city. Though now absent, Ephesus was located at, the, at a bay, a bay that led out into the Aegean Sea. The Caister River would come by and would dump into an area just outside of Ephesus and that river then would spill into the Aegean Sea. They had to constantly dredge that, that area up because it was filling the area with silt and sand and so they had to dredge it up so ships could come in and they did that for centuries. Today, if you go there, you'll see no such bay because it's, it's gone. All the silt and the sand has filled it up and the Aegean Sea is eight miles from Ephesus today. So you won't see it. But then in Paul's day, it was right there and it made this city one of the great cities of Asia Minor because of its shipping industry bringing in all of this commerce from the Aegean Sea and from Ephesus, roads would disperse into the rest of Asia Minor. And so it was really one of the most thriving cities of the ancient world. There were four major roads that went from the Aegean and Ephesus leading all to all the major parts of the ancient world. One commentator said it claimed as its title, Ephesus did, the first and greatest metropolis of Asia. It was at Ephesus that the road from the far off Euphrates and Mesopotamia reached the Mediterranean having come by way of Colossae and Laodicea. It was at Ephesus that the road from Galatia reached the sea, having come by the way of Sardis, and from the south came up the road from the rich Meander Valley. Strabo, the ancient geographer, called Ephesus the market of Asia. Ephesus was the gateway to Asia. You would think they'd have like a, an arch there just to, to be a gateway. Its position made Ephesus the wealthiest, greatest city in all of Asia. It was aptly called, says this commentator, the vanity fair of the ancient world. It was also home to the ancient temple to Artemis. Or some have referred to it as the temple of Diana. The Romans later would refer to this as the temple of Diana. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a really phenomenal place when you read about its history. Today, if you go there to Ephesus, you'll look at, you'll probably stand at the Byzantine site around the 6th century it was developed, and you can look out and see just one column left of this ancient temple to Artemis. But it had 120 columns that would extend about 60 feet each, and many of them were covered in jewels and gold. It was a fascinating place because basically this temple and because of its location in Ephesus, it, it brought a lot of commerce and it became known as a place where you would leave some of your wealth like a bank. 
people would bring their, their goods and their wealth and they would store it there. But it was also known because it was a free city, no Roman uh, troops were stationed there, a free city. And because criminals could find sanctuary, they would find sanctuary at the temple of Artemis. That's a great place for criminals to be is at a bank, isn't it? In this bustling town of every imaginable sin, because it had, it had everything imaginable. You read, and we'll read a little bit of it out of Acts 19, all kinds of magic arts being produced there, all sorts of paganism. The temple of Artemis was known for its prostitution because engaging with the prostitutes at the temple was communing with the goddess, the god Artemis. In fact, one individual, Heraclitus, was known as the weeping philosopher. He said that the inhabitants of the city were fit only to be drowned and that the reason why he could never laugh or smile was because he lived amidst such terrible uncleanness. Bustling city filled with immorality. And there's a church there. And it's a strong church at least when it comes to the vibrancy of their orthodoxy, they are very strong. Acts chapter 18 verse 19 describes Paul entering into the city, engaging the Jews in the synagogue. They actually wanted him to stay longer than he did. We don't know how long he stayed in that initial visit, but he does not stay, he moves on, but he leaves behind a couple named Priscilla and Aquila. You've heard of them before. They were in the city, and they began to listen to a very well-spoken preacher by the name of Apollos and Apollos from Alexandria which is interesting too Alexandria known for its great library Apollos was in Ephesus which would become known for its rival library and the library of Celsus and you can see the facade of it today in the ancient city of Ephesus Apollos was there but he did not have a fully formed understanding of the gospel he only knew about the preaching of the Messiah up to John the Baptist. He was still expecting the Messiah and he's preaching eloquently from the Old Testament scriptures and Priscilla and Aquila have to pull him aside and say, no, the spirit has come, Jesus has come. We're in the new covenant and had to round out his theology a little bit. Paul would eventually return to the city and when he returned, he stayed there for about two years. You'll find it recorded in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 19 in verse 8 says he entered that synagogue continues speaking out boldly for three months reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God but when some were becoming hardened and disobedient speaking evil of the way that is about Christianity before the people he withdrew from them took away the disciples reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus another place within the city outside the synagogue where he could just openly preach and this took place for two years, verse 10 says of Acts 19. Two years. So that, listen to this, Paul goes back to the city and all of Asia, that is all of the western part of modern Turkey, all of Asia Minor, all of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And the gospel was so powerful in this area. It says in verse 11, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus. This is fascinating. 
some Jewish exorcists who made their business of going around and casting out demons thought, hey, this Jesus things, this is a pretty good racket. Let's use his name and let's drive some demons out because they'd seen what Paul was doing. So they would run by people who seemed to be possessed of demons, if you could imagine a city that had people obviously possessed by demons. And they would say, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. In verse 14 of Acts 19, seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, this would be terrifying, I think. I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul. But who are you? (laughs) You never want to hear a demon say that, do you? I never want to hear a demon. (laughs) And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus. And fear fell upon them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. I mean, the gospel is so strong in this city. Many of those who had practiced, who had believed and kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices, and many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone, and they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. That's a powerful testimony of the beginning of the gospel you could only imagine the vibrancy in this church acts 19 beginning in verse 23 describes a riot that broke out in the city you you read about the magicians coming and they're throwing all their books in there and it's all worth all of this silver well the silversmiths who made little idols to Artemis and sold them in the Agora, the marketplace, began to watch all their profits drift away. And so they started rumors about Paul who was going to drive out Artemis. And listen, this city was one of these cities known and designated by the Romans to be a keeper, a guard of the temple that belonged to Artemis. They were known for that in their city. They had the, the temple of Artemis, the great, one of the great wonders of the ancient world. So to attack Artemis was to attack this city. So they start a rumor about Paul and it creates a riot. And if you've been to the ancient city of Ephesus, you'll know they've excavated the theater that seats some 24,000 people. And you can stand in the Agora and you can see that theater as if You were right where the Apostle Paul was when those 24,000 people rush into that theater. And for two hours, two hours, they shout, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Mind-blowing. In fact, I remember reading this passage while sitting in the Agora. And my kids were sitting on a stone. There's stones all over the place. And we read this passage And looking up at that theater, I'm pointing to it, and then I just noticed that my kids were sitting on a stone that read Diana of the Ephesians. I said, children, you will not appreciate this, but look what you're sitting on. It's what we just read, and I don't think they appreciate it. They're like, Dad, why are you crying at another pillar out here? You know, why? (laughs) It's awesome. You should go see it. So Ephesus was a city filled with all sorts of 
magical, pagan, religious beliefs, as well as every sort of approach to immorality that you could possibly imagine. And when John receives this letter, this church in Ephesus still has a very strong Christian testimony, some 40 years after its founding that you read about in Acts chapter 19. But this church is beginning to falter. They're beginning to falter, and it's not because of some kind of doctrinal compromise. No, they were very strong. They're beginning to falter because of their love. So the passage opens as it does in every letter by reminding everyone who's reading this of some characteristic of Christ that would be critical for this church to keep in mind. And you know that all of these characteristics of Christ are taken from the opening vision in chapter 1. That is true of this one, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. What is that emphasizing? What does the church who is about to lose its love or has lost its love, they have great doctrinal conviction and purity and orthodoxy, but they're losing love. What do they need to keep in mind about Christ? His authority and his presence. Authority, because that's what's emphasized in the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Again, we've, we've seen that already in chapter 1, verse 16, that there were the angels of the churches who were, were in the hand of the Christ, the exalted Christ that John saw, and the explanation of that was given in chapter 1, verse 20, that these seven angels are the, the seven angels, these seven stars are the seven angels over these churches, likely actual angels dispatched to give the book of Revelation to each church and dispense it from the authority of Christ himself. Now what's interesting is back in chapter 1 when it describes these angels, it says Christ has them, uses a general term for the word to have. He has them in his hands. But here he uses a totally different word, a word that means to grasp or to seize, translated sometimes as arrest. It's a very almost violent word. He's grasping these angels as if to hold them in his hand. They represent his sole sovereign authority. And he grasps them, a firm grasp on the word that must come to the churches. We'll see this as we move on, but for those of us who hold on to biblical truth with tenacity, I think it's very likely that those of us who are really known for our doctrinal tenacity to stop listening very well when someone challenges us because we, we know the truth. We know the truth. And so when someone challenges, I already know the truth. Well, what if it's Jesus who's challenging you? And it's Jesus who says, I'm the one who has the message. You think you're guarding the truth, but I'm the one who has complete authority over the churches. I am the one that dispenses this truth to the churches. Listen, it's one thing for someone outside of our church to criticize our church and expect it. It's going to happen. It's another thing for people within the church to have critical points about the church. It's a whole different thing when Jesus has one. When he has a criticism about the church, don't dismiss him 
as he's addressing us in the scriptures as if we already know. Listen. This is giving your mind to his authority. He's the one that controls the message. And listen, uh, it's, it's so easy for us to, to miss the authority of Christ and the word because we're surrounded by such great teachers. We have wonderful teachers in our own church who really do a marvelous job. And, and we listen to teachers on the internet. And, and we engage in conversation about scriptures many times and we make appeal to some of those, those preachers and teachers. Well, Sproul says, MacArthur says, Dever says, as if we're throwing down voices of authority. Trump cards. The authority really is Christ, isn't it? It's, it's not a great Bible teacher and they're wonderful. We benefit from them, but they're only so good as they represent accurately God's word, right? The word of Christ. Every, we need to constantly bring ourselves back to the authority, the sole authoritative voice for our church is the Lord Jesus Christ as he reveals himself in the scriptures, period. But you also have to keep in mind his presence. His presence. And that's found in that phrase, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. He walks among them. We saw this back in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. He was in the middle of the lampstands. We were told in verse 20 that the lampstands represent the seven churches. Here, it's described, he's not just in the midst of them, he's walking among them. He's walking among them. He's present with all of his churches all of the time. Christ is never absent. He's never distracted. He's never unaware of any activity that goes on in any of his churches. He knows all of what they emphasize. Every issue among us, he is fully aware of. He's always present. The fact that he's walking among the churches and he's walking among this church and they have left their first love probably as a reminder for them to look at how they're treating each other. Why do I say that? This is a doctrinally strong church. We'll see it more in a moment. Doctrinally strong churches never think they've lost their love. What do you mean I've lost my love? Look what we believe. But how are you treating each other? Because that's going to be the sign of whether you've lost your love or not. He's walking among them. He knows what's really going on. No matter what they say, no matter what they're actually doing, no matter how strong they are in their convictions, he knows what's really in their hearts. He's walking among them. It's his authority that speaks to us, not our evaluation of ourselves. It's his presence that really knows what's going on. You, you do understand none of us hides anything from the living Christ who was walking among us at this very moment. He knows it all. He knows it all. And let's not forget, the church is his. So, listen, as he's walking among us and he's listening, he, he listens to the way we speak to each other. He listens to the way we speak about each other. He's walking among us. There's not one conversation that goes on among a church where people are talking about one another in the congregation that he's not absolutely aware of. So for him to say, you've lost your love, he knows what we think about each other. He's in the sermon study equipping class knowing that you're disagreeing with the pastor and how he's going to interpret Revelation, right? 
I'm kidding. No, he knows. He, he's, he's in the conversations that you're having about, can you believe this person did that? Can you believe this person thought that? Can you believe? He knows it all. He knows whether we're loving one another or not. He knows. You might be that kind of person who says, well, I'm, I'm not sure that anybody around here loves me. The Lord knows. The Lord knows the truth of that. If you want to keep your love, the first place you begin is to think on Christ. Not yourself, not anybody else, Christ. His voice, his authority, his presence who knows everything among us. Second, another activity to monitor so we don't lose our love. Secondly, continue to preserve orthodoxy. Continue to preserve orthodoxy. Look at verses two and three. The one who's walking among the churches says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. At an initial glance, we would all assume that this is, this is a wonderful church. This is an incredible church. This is a doctrinally rich church, a church zealous for the truth, biblically vibrant. I bet this was a teaching-oriented church. And we should note, Christ commends them for this. He's not getting on to them. He's saying, this is good. This is right. This is necessary. And I know this about you. Jesus does not diminish this quality of doctrinal orthodoxy here. It's critical. Whatever he's going to challenge in this church, and he will challenge them, he still has something good to say about this congregation, and it has to do with their doctrinal vibrancy. And that should remind us, right off the bat, this should remind us that doctrinal zeal does not have to diminish genuine love. It doesn't have to. Doctrinal zeal does not have to diminish genuine love. In fact, I would say it's critical to true love. It's critical. It should fuel true love. It should keep and maintain true love. You don't increase love by diminishing your zeal for the depths of doctrinal truth. You don't see Jesus doing that here, and I often hear that among churches that tend to be doctrinally broad or thin. They often like to, to say about other churches that are stronger or deeper doctrinally, that their, their doctrine is just going to make them arrogant. Doctrine just leads you to not care about people. Well, I think if you don't apply doctrine, it might lead to that. It might lead to that. But right belief that is correctly used will thrill the soul. It will show you the glories of Christ. It will humble you because it shows you who you are. It will show you who the body of Christ is and where he's put you so that you can thrive and grow. Zealous orthodoxy is actually, I think, a key to keeping a church from losing its love. Love without truth, that's meaningless. 
If you don't tr- have truth in your love, that's meaningless. And truth without any love, well, that's pointless. Now, what we know about the church in Ephesus is that they were wonderfully blessed with the, the richness of great teachers of the word. I mean, who started this church? <laughs> the Apostle Paul. He initially began in the synagogue and then he comes back later and spends two years teaching all of the time this church. I mean, who better to teach you than the Apostle Paul himself? They also had teachers like Priscilla and Aquila, Apollos, who was mighty in the scriptures. Later, Paul would dispatch Timothy back to Ephesus to correct and challenge some things in this church in First and Second Timothy. That's where Timothy is. He's in this church in Ephesus. When the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem in 70 AD, Church history tells us that the Apostle John made his way from Jerusalem and headquartered in the city of Ephesus for the remainder of his life. In fact, when he was exiled to Patmos, that was likely for a certain amount of time. When there was a change in the emperors, it was likely that he went back to Ephesus, which was just about 60 miles from Patmos. It is also likely that at least eight New Testament books were given to the church in Ephesus. Have you ever thought about that? Well, who, who wrote one of the Gospels? John the Apostle, who lived where? In Ephesus. That's probably where it originated. The book of Ephesians likely was a circular letter to all of the churches in the area, but it probably began in Ephesus because it was the largest, most influential city. And that's why it gained the title, the book of Ephesians. First and second Timothy were written while Timothy was in Ephesus. First, second, and third John were written while he was an elder in the city of Ephesus and the church in Ephesus and the book of Revelation. So eight New Testament books given to this church. This is a well-taught church. Consider what it is that Jesus knows about this church in relationship to their orthodoxy. Not, Not just what he's aware of, but what he knows of them and actually affirms of them. I know your deeds. Now, what are those deeds? He explains them, your toil, your perseverance, you cannot tolerate evil men, you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, you have perseverance, you don't get weary. I know that about you. This is good. In fact, if you want to keep doctrinal orthodoxy, you want to preserve orthodoxy, you need all of these qualities here. You need all of these qualities. You have to have doctrinal diligence if you want to maintain orthodoxy. You have to have doctrinal diligence. I know your toil. I think that's a good way to translate the word kapos in Greek, toil. It means to work to the point of exhaustion. It's that kind of effort that exhausts you. And make no mistake of it, friends, if you want to keep up and you want to keep ahead of false doctrine, it is an exhausting work. It is. About the time you think you've dealt with an error and you've finally got it corralled and controlled, there's another one that seeps into the church. And just think of all the issues that the Apostle Paul had to deal with in the churches. I mean, just read through 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. It's exhausting reading the issues he's dealing with. To stay orthodox, you have to be diligent. You also have to have doctrinal stability. I know your perseverance, he says. It means you don't stop pursuing this doctrinal orthodoxy. You keep at it. You can't quit studying. You can't quit evaluating. You have to examine what's being said to the flock. You have to examine what the flock is believing. That's necessary. I find, I find this amazing. Uh, now that I'm, I'm starting to get older, that's what some of you say, well, you're starting to get older. 
I've now been pastoring churches for about 35 years. So I've seen a few things and it's amazing. There are things that are cropping up now in regard to inerrancy or the atonement or uh, the, the prosperity gospel, so many things. I thought we dealt with those already. I thought we handled that. No lordship salvation. I thought we dealt with that in the late 80s, early 90s. Mysticism, psychology in the church. I thought we dealt with all that. I mean, there's been definitive things written on that by wonderful teachers. We've done that. There's a new generation, isn't there? There's always a new generation. You have to constantly maintain this doctrinal stability. You have to keep at it and persevere. Also, if you want to have this kind of orthodoxy, you have to have doctrinal intolerance. You say, intolerance, is that, is that a loving word? Yes, when it comes to doctrine, it is. What do you mean? I have to have a bad attitude towards people? No, that's not loving. But when it comes to, to doctrine that redefines Christianity, we must be intolerant. I know that you cannot tolerate evil men, Jesus says. That's what he says. You can't tolerate them. Now, I want you to be careful with that. That doesn't mean that everybody who disagrees with any biblical conviction you have is an evil person that needs to be not tolerated. There are doctrinal issues that we can remain in the same church and disagree over like some issues of eschatology. Now, if you don't believe the Lord is going to come back, that's a big problem. But if you struggle over the timing of the events, that's a smaller problem because it doesn't define whether you're a Christian or not. But when you begin to redefine what Christianity is and who is in and who is out of the gospel, that's a big issue. Heaven and hell are at stake there. So you you can't tolerate that. In fact, Paul had to tell Timothy earlier about people in the church in Ephesus who could not be tolerated. 1 Timothy 1.18. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. What does that mean? There are people who are professing to be Christians who have denied the faith and they're trying to spread that in the church. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander. He names them. Whom I have handed over to Satan. That's a pretty big statement, isn't it? These two guys, Hymenaeus and Alexander, were two guys in the church in Ephesus whom Paul had to hand over to Satan and Timothy had to point blank deal with when he was in that church. When Timothy got Paul's last letter that he would ever write that we know of, do you remember some of the final words that Paul told to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4? You got to preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. You have to reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and all instruction for the time will come when they will not endure what? Sound doctrine. They won't put up with it. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they're going to accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and they'll turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Keep in mind, Paul is writing that to Timothy who is in what church? Ephesus. There has to be an intolerance of those who are trying to redefine the atonement 
and repentance in salvation. And the intent of the atonement to provide, some would say the, the, the purpose of the atonement is to give you physical well-being. And so you should be seeing freedom from all your illnesses and diseases if you're really a Christian. You should be really prospering physically in the wealth of this world if you're really blessed of God. And if you're not, then maybe you're not in the blessing of God. That redefines the gospel. You, you can't tolerate that. They corrupt the gospel. You also have to have, if you want to maintain orthodoxy, you have to have doctrinal discernment. And you see that in verse 2. I know that you put to the test those who, are call, who call themselves apostles and they are not, and you found them to be false. We don't know exactly what was going on here other than it seems to be similar to what was happening in the city of Corinth when some who called themselves apostles and said they had the same authority as the rest of the apostles... I don't think they were trying to make themselves one of the 12, but an expanded group of the apostles who had apostolic authority were actually redefining the gospel. And you see that unfold in the book of 1 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians, they're actually called super apostles who are false teachers. And Paul had to refute all of those errors, all of those so-called apostles, and the church in Ephesus was doing the same. You put them to the test. You are doctrinally discerning. You're taking what they say and you compare it to what God has revealed in the authoritative written scriptures and you're putting them to the test and finding them to be false. Meaning they were constantly studying the Bible because that's the only way to recognize and discern truth from error, isn't it? You're constantly in the word, comparing the scriptures with the scriptures. So you have discernment. That's how you keep doctrinal purity. Also, if you want to maintain orthodoxy, you have to have doctrinal endurance. Doctrinal endurance, verse three. You have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and you've not grown weary. I love that. This church just wouldn't quit. All the assaults that they were receiving. I mean, you can only imagine a city like this, constant input from people coming in with new ideas and new things to think about. And this church just wouldn't tire of maintaining doctrinal orthodoxy. And listen, they were warned about it. The last time that Paul addresses the leaders to the church in Ephesus, Acts chapter 20, he's in Miletus, which is a little bit south of Ephesus. And he called for the elders of the church in Ephesus to come to him, to meet with him before he went to Jerusalem. And he told them, Acts chapter 20, verse 26, I testify you to this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men because I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know, listen to this, Paul says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So be on the alert. Remember that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. When he writes Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 verse 3, he says, I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. And all of that came 
and they did not get weary. They persevered. They were doctrinally orthodox. And listen, if you want to maintain love, it has to be according to the truth. You can't define love by what you feel, what you think. It has to be defined by what the Bible says. You have to define it by orthodox teaching. So don't divide love and orthodoxy. They go together. In fact, when the Bible talks about loving God, it usually pairs it with keeping his commandments. It's how you show your love for God and others. And we'll see more of that in a moment. So you have to have doctrinal orthodoxy. You need it. But while essential, doctrinal orthodoxy is not enough. In fact, if that's all you have, your church doesn't deserve to exist. That's what Jesus says next, right? So there's a third activity that we have to monitor so as to keep and not lose our love. And that is what we're going to see in verses four and five. Make love your goal. Make love your goal. You say, wait a minute. Love is the goal, not truth. I can hear someone saying that. Because love sometimes feels so squishy. It's so subjective. You can't really nail it down all the time. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. The Apostle Paul says to Timothy, who's in the city of Ephesus, the goal of our instruction is love. Isn't that fascinating? He tells his church, the goal of our instruction is love. And Jesus tells this church 40 years later, maybe 20 years in relationship to 1 Timothy, I have this against you. You have left your first love. Therefore, remember where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. How are we gonna keep love as the goal of our ministry? It has to be the goal. It's not divorced from truth, but the goal of truth is to demonstrate love. Well, first, if you want to make love your goal, you're going to have to see love as foundational. And I think this is critical for all of us. Love has to be foundational. What did Jesus have against the church? They left what? The foundation of their Christianity, which was love. You've left your first love. You say, well, what does he mean by first love? What does that mean? Well, it's in contrast to what they're called to do. Do the deeds that you did at first. So this is a love that they had in the beginning, likely the beginning of their conversion, likely the beginning of their church. It was foundational to them as a church. They had this love and they need to go back to that because they've left it. They've lost that original love that defined them. They're now defined as doctrinally orthodox. They're not defined as loving. You say, well, is, is that really the heart of Christianity? Isn't it just real truth that says the right things? Yes, that's necessary. But do you remember what Jesus said when he was asked, 
What is the greatest commandment of all the commandments in the Bible? A lawyer asked him that question, by the way. And that means someone who's an expert in the Old Testament law, right? Someone who knew forward and backward the Old Testament law. He's trying to trick Jesus because if I can get you to say this one, then that pits you against these other laws. It's a trick question. And what did Jesus say? You shall, what? Love. Love who? The Lord your God. How much? With all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Matthew 22, 35, 36, 37. This is the great and foremost commandment. And he didn't stop. The second is like it. You shall Love your neighbor as yourself. And then this powerful statement at the end of that. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. That is a profound statement. The Ten Commandments were basically just an outline for the rest of what you will read in the book of Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. It's just an outline for all the other vast number of laws that were given. It's like the table of contents. And here's the headings, that's the Ten Commandments. And the rest of the the Old Testament law explicated what did that look like. And Jesus just said, all of the law and the prophets who were basically commenting on the law is summed up in love God and love your neighbor with everything in you. So every little law that you find in Leviticus and every obscure commandment that you seem to run across in Deuteronomy is either about loving God or it's loving your neighbor. In fact, everything about your life was touched by the law, so you had to make a decision constantly. Am I going to love the Lord and follow him? Am I going to love my neighbor because that's what the law dealt with. You can read Deuteronomy chapter 10. What does the Lord require of you but to love him and keep his commandments? And if you read through those commandments, you're gonna find that God is a God who has compassion on those in the covenant community who need to be loved. This was drawn out by the Lord Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 10. There's again another lawyer that is an expert in the Old Testament law in, in Luke 10, 25, stood up and put Jesus to the test. And the question that this lawyer asked his teacher, not what's the greatest commandment. He asked, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, that's, that's powerful. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And this lawyer answered correctly. He says in verse 27 of Luke 10, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. That's how the lawyer answered. Maybe he got that from Jesus when Jesus answered it previously. Jesus said, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. You know what the next statement says? but wishing to justify himself. What does that mean? 
I think he had an evaluation of himself that he loved God with everything in him, but he knew he wasn't loving others. Because wishing to justify himself, he then said, who then is my neighbor? Which then Jesus tells the story of the good Samaritan, which is fascinating because the law called all Jewish people to care for those within the Jewish community, especially when they were at their greatest need. And so Jesus tells a story of a Jewish man who's been robbed and left for dead on the side of the road and all of these Jewish leaders go by him and won't do what the law calls them to do to care for him. Until a Samaritan whom no one thought could know God or have eternal life comes by and does exactly what the law called the Jews to do. And he cares for the man. Jesus wasn't answering the question, who is my neighbor? He was answering the question, how do you have eternal life? And he left that man devastated because that man knew that he was asking a question, how do you have eternal life? Well, what does the law say? Love God and love others. And he knows he's not loving others, therefore he doesn't love God. That's the whole point of the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's really what you find the rest of the Bible. How did Paul address the misuse of spiritual gifts in the church in Corinth? They love the showy supernatural gifts. 1 Corinthians 13.1 If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I know all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor and if I surrender my body to be burned, well, that sounds like loving. Can you do all that and not have love? Yeah, sure. You can do things to be noticed and not really love someone. If you don't have love, it profits me nothing. At the end of the day, what's going to remain? Well, he says in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of all of them is? It's plain and simple, isn't it? John the Apostle wrote in his first epistle, 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not abide, who does not love, abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. How do we know God loved us? Look what he gave for us. He laid down his life for us and we ought to lay our lives down for the brethren. Why? Because that's the demonstration of love. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. I mean, we could go on and on because this is the constant testimony throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament as well. People ask, well, what love did they leave? Was it just a love for God or a love for people? The answer is yes. Both. Because you can't separate those two. You can't separate them. Love from God to you was shown in great deeds and affection. So this has to be foundational to you. If love's not foundation to you, you'll lose it. It has to be at the core. 
What else do we have to do to make love our goal? Secondly, remember what first love looked like. That's what Jesus calls them to do, to remember. You've left love as foundational. So what do you do? Remember from where you have fallen. What did it look like before? What did love look like in you when you were converted? When you were founded as a church, what did love look like? What did the one another's of the New Testament look like? You were praying for one another. You're reading the word. You're investing each other. You're discipling one another. You're fellowshipping together. You're a part of the church. You're coming to everything the church does because you want to be around these people until the challenges come. And then some of those people disappoint you. And those people offend you. And they say things that hurt you. And you start to say, I I don't know if I want more of that. And you begin over time to lose your love. What do you do? Go back and remember what it was like when it was vibrant and it was fresh and it was new and it was exhilarating because you were so stunned with the love of God. So overwhelmed with how sinful you were. You didn't make claims on anyone because you knew you didn't deserve to make a claim on anybody. Your sin before God left you with nothing to say against anybody else. And and friends, we don't ever outgrow that. You don't ever get to a place where you say, well, I kind of have a right not to like them. You say, ah, there's a difference between like and love. Not the way we normally use it. If If you like to say, oh, I have to love them, I just don't have to like them, then I really wonder if you're gonna love them. I really do wonder about that. I'm not saying they have to be your closest confidant, but listen, if you say, I don't have to like them, I'm at the core of that is some idea of, I just really don't wanna be close to them at all. I don't wanna give to them. I I really don't wanna be around them. I'm gonna sit on the opposite side of the sanctuary from these folks. I don't know if that's a love issue or not, but uh, I think it's a nursery issue probably. Go back and remember what it looked like before. We love orthodoxy, we love truth, we love studying the Bible. You ever notice that people get in the way of your study of the Bible sometimes? When people become a nuisance to your Bible study, you're losing your love. Because the whole point of the Bible study is to Learn how to love each other. Are you condemning people who have bad theology? Ah, we're to be intolerant. Be intolerant of bad theology. Don't be unkind to people. Be patient with them. Work with them. Befriend them. Get to know them. You say, but they have bad theology. Win them. Win them. That's how you love. You don't, love is not just bring the hammer. Oh, it's loving to crack their skull with truth. It's loving, yes, to confront error so they don't continue in it. Heaven and hell could be at stake. But win them. So when you remember it, what do you do? What's the next step? You, you see it, you repent, Right? Repent of leaving love behind. When you see it and you say, oh, look how far I've come. I'm not a very kind, I'm not a very patient, I'm not a very caring person in the way I'm handling myself with the people. I'm even losing some vibrancy in my zeal for God himself. I just, all I can think about is right and wrong. Repent. 
Repent. Now I want you to notice, love is not absent of deeds. Do you see that? Verse five, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. So love isn't absent of deeds. It has actions all the time. Do those deeds that you used to do. Well, what does that look like? Here's my challenge to you. If you want to know what this looks like, go back to something like 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 4, and read through verse 7, because this is a definition of what love does. They're all action verbs. So ask yourself, are you impatient? Then address the issue in your mind that causes you to be impatient. What are you thinking about the person that causes you to be impatient? And then challenge yourself, how patient has God been toward you? Are you unkind? What does that unkindness look like? And then begin to compare it to how God has treated you in kindness. Are you jealous? Are you arrogant? Are you selfish? What has led you to such a high evaluation of yourself? And what would a less jealous view of others actually look like? What, a, what would a lower estimation of your own self look like? Do you carry a list of wrongs? You might actually have a written list. I don't like this, 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 and this. Well, love doesn't carry a list of wrongs. What if God carried a list of wrongs? <laughs> Who survives that? This is what repentance looks like. If you don't have these qualities, these actions, these deeds, then address what is causing you to drift from them and repent. Deal with the way you're thinking so that you begin to change the way you're living. And that's what repentance means. It's metanoeo. Noeo is the mind Meta, to change, to change the mind, change your evaluation of the issue so that your behavior begins to follow the change. That's repentance. Then, last, if you want to keep love and make it your goal, you have to live in light of judgment. Actually, you have to love in light of judgment. Notice this. The end of Verse five, I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place. I'm coming to you. That's not a temporal coming of Jesus. That is probably referring to the final coming of Jesus, the ultimate coming of Jesus, because that's the way that word coming is used throughout the book. And it's not saying I will come. It says I am coming. This is how we need to see the, the Lord Jesus. His return is not going to happen someday. It's already begun. It's as if he's coming now. I think this has in mind the similar kind of evaluation that Paul had in 1 Corinthians 3 of the church that one day the way we built the church is going to be evaluated by the coming of Christ and we're going to find out whether we have anything or not. What actually lasts for eternity that we built as a church and what just fades away because it was so tied to the culture, so tied to what is temporal, so tied to what is passing away? Or did we actually love one another because love is what lasts. Again, loving people doesn't mean you don't speak hard things to one another. 
but you do that with the goal in mind that you want someone to thrive and benefit. And you know what helps us is to just keep in mind the Lord's coming to evaluate Summit Woods Baptist Church. And what happens if in all eternity our ministry just evaporates? It's just what we did was so small spiritually, so tied to things that were just temporal, temporal friendships. We did good things together, but we didn't do eternal things together. He's coming. All right, I got to move on. And I'm going to, this will be quick. Let's look at a fourth activity to monitor so we keep and we don't lose love. It's in verse six. It is keep your devotion clean of compromise. Keep your devotion clean of compromise. Verse six. He comes back to a commendation. Yet this you do have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So is there a hatred within love? Yes. Love is not absent of hate because you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans and I also hate those. I want you to love, but you also have to have some hate and that hate is tied to a compromised understanding of truth. Now we'll look at it more later because it comes up again in chapter two, verse 15 and it's defined a little bit more in that section so we'll look at it there. But just to sum it up, this is likely, we, we really don't know who the Nicolaitans were. Uh, nothing else is said other than here and in verse 15 of chapter 2 about the Nicolaitans. So we don't know much about them. They seem to be tied to a similarity to Balaam in the Old Testament who couldn't curse Israel but could tempt them through idolatry and compromising mixing idolatry with their worship of Yahweh and then they committed immorality. So these deeds of the Nicolaitans likely have some kind of taking something from the philosophies of the world, the other religions of the world, and then mixing them together with Christianity, which is a constant issue. And it's fascinating to listen to people say out loud, oh, well, this, mixing this Eastern mystic practice with Christianity doesn't really do anything to Christianity. Really? Are you kidding me? Well, it doesn't have any effect on me. That's a problem. In fact, if you want to look at all of the idolatry that takes place and all the images and all the things that happen within Roman Catholicism, that's not inherent in what biblical Christianity is about. They imported other religions into Christianity to come up with what we see today. And by the way, we're not going to just throw stones there. We do it all the time. We're taking this philosophy that we think will work from the world and this idea and that religious practice and we're mixing them together thinking that we can get away with that. And what that's going to do is deteriorate true biblically defined love because it's now compromised, it's now syncretistic. Which was the problem throughout the Old Testament with Israel because they kept mixing pure religion, undiluted religion with the philosophies of the world because it felt right. It helped them to get along with people. Be careful. So common. Don't do it. Don't read paganism into the Bible. 
which is typically what we do when we try to mix them. That will dilute your ability to love because you're not going to love according to truth. A fifth activity to monitor. This is real simple. It's in verse 7. It's really simple. Pay attention. Pay attention. Don't let yourself say, ah, I think that's for that person or that church, not our church. No. Don't you think the church in Ephesus would be quick to say, wait a minute. We're so strong theologically. We're so vibrant in our orthodoxy. How in the world could you say we're not loving? No, listen. He who has an ear, let him hear. Do you have a spiritual ear? Do you have a converted ear to hear? That's what he's asking. Then you had better hear with obedience. Hear with obedience what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Listen, pay attention, look at yourself. Don't deny the conviction. Respond to it. Pay attention. We're going to see that with every church that he addresses. Pay attention to this lesson. And listen to church. All of these churches, we are going to be tempted to fall into all of their traps. Those that Christ has to address. Never think that our church can't be one of these. We can move in and out of them. And in fact, I think if you want to pick a church that fits us well, it might be this one. It might be this one. We're a teaching church. We love to teach. We, we love orthodoxy. We want to stand for the truth. Yes. And there's everything right about that and good about that. And we can be harsh and unkind and unforgiving and dismissive. And that's not love or impatient. The last and the sixth activity to monitor as we keep and we don't lose love is we have to change with eternity in mind to him who overcomes what does that mean to overcome to change to stop doing the thing that Christ called us to repent of right to change to overcome the overcomer is a Christian by the way that's how it's defined throughout the entirety of the Bible those who overcome are the ones who will be saved if you don't overcome and you're overcome by the evil, you will not be saved. You will not have eternity. You say, how can you say that? Once saved, always saved. If you don't overcome, you are not saved. You say, well, how can you be so definitive? Well, look what he says. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What is that? Where did you first read about the tree of life? Well, that was back in Genesis, right? The tree of life. It was that tree that gave them sustaining eternal life. And when Adam and Eve sinned against God, they were removed from access to eternal life. Removed from it. Where are we headed? You're going to see the tree of life again in Revelation 22. When the Lord returns and he defeats all of his enemies places them under his feet and the Lord gives everything over to God and God becomes all in all as 1 Corinthians 15 says that's when we find Revelation 22 and there's a new heaven and a new earth and what is in that new heaven and that new earth Revelation 22 2, in the middle of its street on either side of the river was the tree of life 
bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations because it's the nations that walked away from God, Genesis 10 and 11. Revelation 22, 14, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to eat of the tree of life. That means to have eternal life and may enter by the gates into the city. Revelation twenty two nineteen. 19, if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. See, ah, oh, that's heaven. Uh, it is, but not heaven as we think about heaven right now. It's heaven as it's going to be when heaven is on earth. It's the new earth where heaven and earth are one and we live on this earth with God at the center point and we constantly eat of the tree of life, meaning we never face the possibility of death again. This is what Christianity is. Eternal life is life in the new heaven and the new earth. And if you lose your love and you do not overcome, you can be orthodox and you could be in the pit that burns with brimstone and fire for the rest of eternity. And you can wave your doctrinal statement from there. You can. Because the goal of our instruction is love. A church that loses its love is a church, church that divorces itself from God himself. Love is what defines us as God's people, isn't it? There's a good New Year's resolution. Let's don't lose our love. Let's grow it. Maintain it. Flourish in it. Let's pray together.